So Lee is with us today, and Lee is currently the Director of Maintenance and Reliability for NTT GDC Americas, a global telecommunications and data center company. His previous positions were held at BASF, Graphic Packaging, and at Packaging Corporation of America as a reliability engineer, a maintenance engineer, an RCM manager, and a production manager. Lee also served in the U.S. Navy as a submarine officer, and he holds a, wait for it, BSME, MBA, CMRP, CRL, CPMM. And if that is not enough, Lee is also the author of a book. He has a book available in, in the reliability web area of Amazon, and that book is called Maintenance Leadership 101. Lee, thank you so much for being here again with us today. We're very excited to hear your topic today, culture. Can it be changed? Lee, take it away. Yeah, thanks very much, Robin. Uh, good morning, everybody. I'm really excited to be here. You know, this is a great topic, and I put a lot of thought in into this over the last several years. I wrote an article for Plant Services that was published in the last November, December um, magazine. And um, so let me, uh, without further ado, Sheeta, Robin already kind of went over all this stuff, but that's what the book looks like in case you're interested. Um, so I start out with a, a poll question just to get started here. Um, all right, Robin, are you gonna be able to do the poll? There we go. I think it's important, you know, to consider what your culture is and at what level of the curve it could be. And that's, it could be relative, it could be relative across the company, relative between industries. You know, there's a lot of factors and we'll kind of talk about those. But I just want to kind of give a little idea of how the, um, where the audience is at. <clears throat> All right, do we have the results of the poll? We do, and they are being shared, Lee. I'm not sure why you're, why you're not seeing them, but I'm happy to verbalize them for you. If you would, please. Sure. 54% say improving, 35% say tolerable, and 6% each say outstanding and on life support. Okay. All right. So nobody in the outstanding area. So that's good. That's why we're here today. <laughs> so this is the agenda I'm going to kind of talk about, you know, definition or the influence of culture, some positive improvements you need to make. And I got a lot of personal examples over my career. So this is standard definition from Webster's, um, you know, different people groups, different nations. There's all, what I like to refer to culture as more of a personality, you know, and since we're talking really about manufacturing, industrial plants, you know, what is the personality of the team? You know, is there like a lot of fighting in a team? Do they all work together? You know, if you got a problem, do people jump in, you know, and, and help out? And uh, and how is the culture, you know, the management culture? You know, how easy do they set up processes? 
you know, make people's jobs easier and those types of things. So I want to do a, one more poll here and see what the consensus is on the biggest impact on the culture. So there's no question all four of these have an impact. And so I want to kind of talk about each one a little bit. We'll see what people come up with or what they're thinking. So I would consider these, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Sorry, Lee, I was just gonna say we're at about 50% voted, so I'm gonna give them just a moment longer. Okay, thanks. And I've closed the poll and are sharing the results now. Lee, if you don't see those, I can verbalize them again. If you would, please. Sure. 37% department managers and supervisors, 30% site plant upper management, 19% employees at the deck plate level, and finally 14% are corporate. Wow. Okay, that's pretty a uh, pretty even spread there. Okay. <clears throat> so I think corporate does have kind of an influence. Um, you know, you may have heard like the program of the month, you know, they want you to some initiative that they decide on their own, you know, maybe not really, and they're probably just looking at the financial end of it, you know, maybe not the impact. I know one time we had to like limit our overtime to 10%, you know, across the board. <clears throat> and sometimes you can do it, sometimes you just can't, you know, it depends on what kind of, you know, um, failures that you have, and things you have to respond to. And, um, you know, the corporate office provides some policies and procedures, you know, some ways of doing things. And it depends on your management, you know, how much they want to follow all those corporate guidelines or kind of, you know, set, set their own. So upper management definitely has an impact. You know, as you get a new plant manager, they're gonna have their own priorities. You know, some of them may be, hey, I'm gonna get promoted again. You know, maybe be an area manager in three years. Um, it may be, hey, I'm here for the long haul. You know, I'll wait till my kids get out of college. You know, so I'm going to stay here. We just want to make this the best we can. So they can have a pretty big impact, you know, on, on the culture within your plant. I think that, you know, supervisors, managers also have a certainly a big impact. Um, all of them have a different leadership style. All of them have maybe different priorities. Again, personal priorities, how long they want to stay there. You know, maybe they're going to work there for 40 years and retire. So they're pretty embedded. Um, you know, all those factors have a big, a big impact. And employees, employees should have a pretty big impact. I mean, and it's not all just from internal to them. There's these external factors that make them feel valued. You know, what is their human capital? You know, are they listened to? You know, those types of things. So I think teamwork is a big thing. If people feel part of the team, they're going to jump in. They're going to try and make things better. And, and it, the policy procedures will help. Um, you know, if you have like emergency situations, you know, do you have a written procedure? Do you practice, have like a little drill time? You know, do you do a tornado drill you know, every so often? Um, those types of things are maybe external to the building. 
You know, what if you had a fire? You know, does the fire department know your layout? All those things have, have an influence. Um, yeah, so those are all the major influences. So <clears throat> I think a big thing is um, communication. You know, hopefully your site has like an all hands kind of a call or, you know, maybe once a month, once a quarter, maybe have a, you know, the plant manager, top management talk to you. Maybe they'll bring in, <clears throat> pardon me, some sales folks. Can I tell you, you know, how that's going? You know, are we on track for the year? You know, do we have big accounts that we're looking at? Um, you know, people like to hear those, those kinds of things. Human capital, yeah, do the people feel valued? You know, are there activities and things that, that kind of get teamwork going? You know, sometimes you have, you know, people go out and do like rope courses or, you know, all kinds of different activities you can do as either department, maybe even a plant. Um, all those really kind of help build that, that, that teamwork. And as any organization, you got to have good goals and objectives, you know, that people understand where they're at. I mean, everybody's on the same <clears throat> ship, it's all steering in one direction, but hopefully people aren't like moving in circles on that ship. You know, hopefully everybody's, you know, looking ahead and they're identified well. And not only should it be identified plant-wide, <clears throat> pardon me again, but, you know, in the department, you know, and are they posted? You know, are you looking at downtime? You know, is there graphs showing downtime on different machines? You know, is, is there a safety goal? Um, and of course, every, everybody has safety goals, but how are they broken down? You know, are you tracking near misses? You know, that could have been, you know, an OSHA recordable or a lost time accident. And challenges, you know, if you had like an emergency, you know, like uh, one challenge I'm thinking of in one of my plants, you know, the city was, was working on our main water supply, unbeknownst to me. And it was kind of in the back, you know, you, you couldn't really even see where they were located at. And they punched a hole in the pipe. And so they ended up isolating it. So the entire facility didn't have any water, which means no, no production. And you know, knowing our, our whole water system, you know, our main supply came in from the back half of the plant. But for whatever reason, you know, they ran all the fire hydrants in the front side of the plant, and it was a whole different supply. And it went down the road, you know, supplying the, the fire, you know, water to all the, the plants that are along that industrial parkway. <clears throat> so we were able to actually run a really long series of fire hoses from the front to the back of the plant and tie it into the domestic water supply. And it took a couple hours, you know, but we we're able to get water back and, and restart production. So when you have challenges like that, you know, do people jump in? You know, who in your department jumps in? And of course, you know, you want to reward folks that, that really get engaged and help out and, and things like that and recognize, you know, people. All that kind of helps, helps with their culture. Uh, suggestions. You know, I always carried around a three by five little steno pad in, in my pocket because I'd walk, you know, from the back of the plant where I was located to the front, you know, where I'd get my mail or talk to my boss or engage some of the management team, maybe the scheduler, have two or three people stop me along the way. Hey, I got this problem or, hey, what about doing this? And if I didn't write it down, I'd usually forget it or at least forget, you know, a number of them. So that's one thing to help remember it. But the other thing is I write down the person's name. 
you know, who it was. And whatever the suggestion was, I would get back to them. Hey, you know, yeah, that was a really great idea. We're going to do this. Or, well, not a bad idea. Pretty costly. You know, we'll, we'll add it to our capital list and maybe it'll get approved, you know, one day. Or, yeah, we really looked at that. You know, I talked to this person. You know, I investigated it by talking to a vendor, you know, maybe some, you know, expert engineer. And it's really not going to work out the best because of whatever. And even if it, they don't like the answer, they will appreciate the fact that you took the time to research it and get back to them. And they, they may actually give you another one at some point. So examples, you know, yeah, posting communication. Another communication tool I used was, you know, making sure I got my department all together. And most people have three shifts. So it's kind of hard to get everybody together. <clears throat> what I did, and it was, it was a little bit challenging for the folks on second shift, is I would have <clears throat> basically require everybody in all three shifts to come in, like a 7 a.m. in the morning or whatever shift turnover time was. <clears throat> a lot of people <clears throat> over time got, kind of got used to it because it sort of having all three shifts together kind of eliminates some of the finger pointing, like, oh, you know, third shift did this, they didn't tell me about it, you know, or whatever, whatever the shifts were. So you get everybody together, kind of really helps create some synergy. They get to know each other a little bit better because they may not see each other very much. And it also gives you the opportunity to help communicate, you know, how we're we doing with our goals. You know, hey, we're gonna have these capital projects coming up. You know, these are some big events. Um, you know, maybe even like some HR things, change in benefits, you know, all that type of communication, things that matter to them, and give them an opportunity to kind of put you on the spot and answer questions and talk about issues, you know, that they're seeing and get some feedback, you know, which is which is really important. You know, I can't emphasize training enough, you know. Do you have like individual training plans? Have you done like a gap analysis? Um, you know, one of my plants, we had like one guy that seemed to have all the electrical knowledge. And he, he didn't, you know, a lot of other people did, but, you know, people were happy. Oh, let's just go have Dave do it, you know, because he does it all the time. And so I created a little training program and I, I had Dave do the training, you know? And so we, we all met in a room and we talked about each machine. You know, we took, we got out all the schematics for the machines, went through them. Then I did another phase where we went out to the machine. You know, we took all the schematics. You know, looked at open control panels and looked at them. You know, made sure people were familiar with all the components and the layout and how the power feed was coming in, those types of things. And then we did a third round where we inserted a trouble. You know, and we were able to schedule downtime on the machines and have people go in and actually troubleshoot a problem, you know, to kind of apply their information. So it really helped Dave out a lot. So he didn't feel all that pressure, but, you know, improved overall, particularly off shifts, you know, be able to troubleshoot equipment, not just have, you know, one person. And management buy-in is key. <clears throat> you know, one thing I think of is like uh, PM plans. So, you know, two of my plants I went to, they are really, really lacking in most areas. You know, one didn't even have a CMMS. 
you know, one had some written PM plans, but only covered about half the equipment. I, I had a really hard time finding evidence that we're doing, you know, monthly PMs and annual PMs. So that's kind of low-hanging fruit. Um, but you have to get your management to buy in on it. And yet, first, you have to create the program. You have to communicate to everybody. And it can't just be a one person, you know, creating all the tasks and all the things. And you can't just go to O&M manual and just copy and paste. And, okay, this is what we're going to do. That's usually not that cost effective. You know, it really should be reliability based on failures. You know, obviously take the OEM as input um, and include operations, you know, on that. The buy-in really needs to be with your scheduler. You know, like, I don't know how many times I'd have this weekly plan, have a machine every day of the week, you know, and then it breaks down, you know, the day before the PM scheduled. It's like, it's already down. You don't want to do the PM necessary during that time because you want to get the machine up. And so you just have to kind of, you know, take that lump. And when it does happen, you know, I would go to my scheduler and say, well, okay, what machine is available? You know, what else can we do? You know, and then I wouldn't leave his office until we would reschedule the machine, you know, that went down and we couldn't do till we had another date. And maybe we bumped the schedule around with some other machines, um, whatever it was. But if you don't reschedule it, you know, we could go by. I mean, you know, schedule's not gonna come to you and say, oh yeah, you know, Lee, you know, now you can go do that PM with all the variables that they're they're dealing with. <clears throat> so that's kind of a partly engaging the workforce, but it's not just maintenance folks, you know, it's operations, you know, too. Some other areas, it might be headcount. You know, how well do you track your overtime? <clears throat> and, you know, is there a range of what overtime should be? Are certain people getting a lot more overtime than others? You know, is it a union environment? You know, do you have to schedule the overtime? You know, only certain people, you know, can get it. So you may need to really evaluate your headcount, and it may not only be just for that percentage of overtime, but it might be based on certain skills. So one of my plants that I was in, we had like one person that really knew PLCs and had training in it. And we had a lot of PLCs, you know, so we started like, well, what's the list? You know, identify what they all are, because we didn't even have a list, you know, when I got there. And then what training is available? And some of them were some really old, like Monocons and, and different things that had been obsolete for a few years. Um, so I need to be part of the capital planning, you know, upgrading them. But once we identified what they are and looked at, you know, what training was available and did like a train a trainer. So I'd like send one guy to this training and not just have one person go to it, but kind of even now, because there's a lot of people really like to learn. And the more you talk to them, then you kind of know who those are, how interested they are, and how much development, you know, personal development they want to go through. And uh, and then they come back, and then you, you have, you know, a group, you schedule training, you go out and look at it, go through troubleshooting. And if you don't do something like that after the school, then people are just going to lose it, right? If they don't use it, you know, after six months, or maybe in a couple months, they're going to forget a lot of what they learned. So you really have to make sure that there's a plan um, of them to execute and go through that, that, that training and look at it. Um, you know, recording your RCM wins. So 
what have you done to show me the money? You know, that's one thing manager wants to know. And when, when you first go in a, a plant, it may be easy because you may have one like I did where, you know, we didn't really have like national agreements. You know, we had all kinds of different vendors. Um, you know, maybe you're, you were following strictly what the OEM recommended, which is usually a little bit over the top. My analogy usually is how many people, and I know there's some people who do this, but how many people really follow the maintenance manual in your car? You know, do you actually check off, okay, I did this, I, you know, I did this, I changed my brake fluid. You, know, you do all these things, oh, 50,000 miles by God, I gotta go change my tires. Three years, I gotta go change my battery, though it may last four or five years. So you have to kind of temper that a little bit. And hopefully in your database, you have failures in a history where you kind of adjust those time periods and whatnot. You kind of look at your condition-based maintenance. And as you develop all that, and people see, hey, you know, we're actually saving money, you know, in the beginning, maybe be a little bit more, you know, maybe, maybe you're not maintaining your equipment like you should, you know, maybe you need to get the OEMs to come in because you got a lot of problems or maybe to increase the knowledge of people. So sometimes I would have a, you know, one OEM technicians come in and they would spend four hours, maybe the whole day just on training, you know, so they would learn that machine a lot better. And it definitely always paid off. Um, and people's knowledge, you know, even looking at having them review your PMs with you, you're like, you know, what am I not doing that I should? And maybe look at a spare parts. You know, am I really carrying the right spare parts that I should? You know, spare parts is an area that really affects you know, your, your department, your people. If they go into your storeroom, you got junk all over the place. Like, like one plan I had, they had a lot of rolls, they had a lot of stuff on shelves no idea what they had. There was no CMMS, not even a spreadsheet listing them. Often the maintenance supervisor would order something that we already had that was sitting on the shelf. And so it took quite a process, you know, to get a room set up, get to get a CMMS, get all that set up. But then, you know, they could actually go look up, you know, and say, oh yeah, it's supposed to be located on the shelf, go there and grab it. It just saved a lot of time. Nobody likes to sit there and hunt through and move things around and, and try to find, you know, the parts and, you know, where the operators say, well, when are you going to fix this thing? You know, and hearing from everybody, you know, when you have a big inefficiency in a process like that. Um, I think a big part of, of culture is your, your personal development as a leader. You know, do you, how do you keep track of, well, maybe suggestions like I mentioned earlier, but how do you keep track of other things and, and activities and your goals and whatnot and communicate that? And then when you say you're going to do something, do you do it? Or people say, well, you know, Haley said he's going to do this, but it's been a year and nothing's ever been said about it. That doesn't really help the culture and the credibility of what you do. So it's, it's really important that you, that you do what you say you're going to do. And if you're not going to do it, then don't say you're going to do it. You know. It's okay to say, well, I'll look into it. Um, I evaluate it. But it, if you're actually going to do it, you know, just make sure that, that you do. Um, and then when you have a machine down, you know, how, what do you, how do you communicate? You know, is it all hands on deck? You know, do you have a, maybe a certain team? You know, this is an emergency team, you know, that, that replies to all the breakdowns? Or do you have a different group um, that's just 
happens to be whoever's on shift, you know, gets a call on the radio and they go respond to it. And then, okay, you get out and you're troubleshooting it. You know, do you go out and look at it? Um, how visible are you? You know, are you communicating with the, the supervisor? You know, did the operations people say, well, you know, it's broke, so they just sent him somewhere else. So the maintenance guy gets there and he has no idea what's wrong. You know, having that continuity of somebody explain it, you know, maybe getting some of the troubleshooting, you need somebody for operations to help run the machine or turn part of it over. Um, and of course, the schedulers need to kind of keep updated so they can let the shipping people know. You know, might have to let the customer know the order may be late. You know, how you deal with that makes a big impact, not only in the plant internally, but your customer base. You know, they know you're on top of it. You're going to get this thing, you know, up as, as soon as possible. And have you really looked at other options? You know, is it is a part of the machine that you just can't run without? You know, can you cannibalize, you know, from something else? Is there an alternative to at least limp along and help a run and get the production out to make a, a perma repair? So it's really machine specific and kind of looking at, you know, what the alternatives are and the options. Um, and then um, I, I kind of call them, uh, you know, bad apples. You know, sometimes there's just some people who just don't seem to want to get on board. Um, I take you know, back to the training. When I got to one of my plants, and it was a union plant, they had negotiated a full training program. And it was incentivized by, you know, increased wages. And it was probably for the different levels, you know, they had like an A, B, C, and then, well, a CBA with A, B, and the highest, and they actually had a double A levels. And those are all negotiated, two to three dollars an hour more for each one of those levels. And it was, before it kind of been like a good old boy thing. The supervisor said, "Oh yeah, okay, I think you're a C. Eh, yeah, I think you're a B." But there's no right criteria. And this is actually kind of a corporate-driven thing. They had laid out. Um, you had to look at your different manufacturers, your own equipment, and some of the skills that you needed. But it was kind of a guideline, a certain checklist. You know, like. You know, does he understand motor theory? You know, can he troubleshoot? You know, does he know brakes and clutches and all the components of mechanical stuff? You know, does he have all the safety you know, requirements down? And all these are in a checklist. And I can remember going to our, our, our union president, you know, who looked like, you know, nothing against folks who ride motorcycles, but he's like a hell's angel kind of guy. And he came across that way, which I'm not. <laughs> So he kind of had that clash a little bit. And I, and I was new, I've been there a few months. And they're like, oh, he just asked me all kinds of questions. And eventually I said, well, it's negotiating a contract and we're gonna do it. And so I met with, you know, all my maintenance guys kind of laid it out. A lot of questions, you know, they're very apprehensive. It was, a, it was you could be grandfathered and not have to partake in it. And I get, you know, so I got a couple of them that said, yeah, you know, we're interested. So I started them through the process. I had one guy, took him about two years before he decided to do it. Another individual who was ranked at a B level. And so I, I got out, you know, a schematic. And I started, you know, I asked him, okay, well, what's this? You know, show him resistors and capacitors and different symbols. And he didn't know very much at all. And I told him, I said, you're not a B-level guy. Um, you know, you're really a C-level guy. You know, we're gonna have to, 
you know, if you're going to go into this program, you know, you're going to have to be basically bumped down to a new C and progress through this. And uh, he didn't think that was fair. And so he ended up, you know, bidding out of the department. Um, hated to lose him. I mean, he stayed in production, did a good job. But just one of those those things that you have to kind of kind of stick to your guns, have the ex set the expectations, and then follow you know through with it. Um, yeah, let me let me actually go back here. And another example, and this wasn't really something that I personally did, but I watched one of our managers. There was a guy that we had. His name was Bob, out on a machine. <clears throat> And he just complained all the time. And he was really <clears throat> kind of a thorn in, in the whole workforce. And again, it was a union shop. And um, my boss somehow worked it out and talked to this guy, gave him a severance package. And I don't know how he did it because that wasn't really negotiable, you know, in the union contract. And ended up, uh, you know, having a guy, you know, leave the plant. It actually made a big difference <clears throat> um, you know, when he left. <clears throat> and then the, the individual who I mentioned, you know, came off of Harley Davidson. I mean, he ended up leave, leave, you know, leaving the plant and we got a new uh, union management, you know, whole team. And <clears throat> when we first got there, you know, we were losing money, you know, and after a couple of years of being there, because um, we had a new plant manager started a couple of years before me and, and hired me in and together we did a lot to help improve the equipment, you know, from breaking down and different processes. And uh, we had union management meetings, you know, it wasn't just a big bitch session about, you know, why management didn't do this and that, but it ended up being more of, hey, you know, I'm kind of noticing this in my work center. You know, I think we could do some improvements, maybe the conveyor system to do this and that. And um, <clears throat> yeah, it, it was really kind of nice to be part of that, where you go through that process, you see what it used to be like to what it what it can be. <clears throat> Another thing that I personally did, I think, kind of helped a lot was we were going to get a new machine. It was it's going to be our largest machine. It's going to take a, a couple other processes and and combine them into one machine. And it was like, well, where are we going to put this thing? And so yeah, I had somebody come in and kind of did a drawing of the plant. And, you know, we had a, you know, the, the layout. We had like little machines. We move around and, you know, did a whole bunch of analysis and, you know, the impact and how the work, the flow would go of the product, you know, coming off our main corrugating machine and how it would feed all the machines. You know, and I was just one guy, right? So I was in charge of the project. I was in charge of maintenance, based like a plant engineer. You know, I had to put together, get all the vendors, get all the quotes, you know, do all that stuff. So one thing that, that I did was I had every work center uh, um, a meeting, and I would lay out the project. I would say, this is what we're doing. You know, this is how it might affect you. You know, this is how we're playing on, like, setting up maybe, you know, some uh, auxiliary parts of the machine, you know, how you would lay out certain parts of, you know, where the power comes in, where the control panel is, you know, where their workstation is, all those types of things that impact them on a, on a daily basis. And I went through the whole plant. I think I took three or four weeks. I think I probably had close to 20 meetings, I even including the shipping guys, 
you know, I included every department. And I was just amazed at all the input. Just amazed that the guys out there, even though they hadn't like seen the machine, they hadn't run that machine, but it was a similar process to other machines. All the ideas they had, and that really helped a lot. Uh, you know, I ended up adding different things that we ended up buying, you know, to, to help things better. And, you know, and then it just kind of went through corporate a lot better because it really done our homework. So that type of engagement and, and seeing somebody that was management, so to speak, I, you know, I was a supervisor at the time, you know, listening to people and taking that into, into effect. And, yeah, it makes a big difference in a plant when you go through those, those kinds of things. Um, so I really believe the culture can be changed and I, I, you have to be a change agent, I think. And, and you have to you know, look at your goals and how you're doing things and kind of be a, a profit in a way. In my current role, you know, I worked about 25 years in manufacturing and then um, you know, I went to this data center industry, which is a little interesting story. You know, I wasn't really looking for a job. And uh, some guy calls me and says, hey, I work for this Raging Wire company. We're a data center company. And I'm like, well, what's a data center? Because I, I really didn't have a lot of details. I didn't understand, you know, what they did and everything. And he says, yeah, you know, we, you know, we have equipment. And, you know, we want to develop a maintenance reliability program. The first thing I thought of, you know, data, you know, it's like servers and stuff. Like, why aren't you like trying to get some IT guy? Why are you talking to a mechanical engineer? Because, oh no, we have all this equipment. And they do, they got, we got all kinds of generators. You know, yeah, we got a lot of electrical equipment, UPSs, whatnot, a lot of chillers, cooling towers, <clears throat> a lot of HVAC stuff. And, hey, we want you to create, you know, this, this program. <clears throat> and data centers are, is, reliability is not a, much of a thing as I've learned over the last six years. And so I've tried to get involved in like, well, how do we cross pollinate across? How do we get people to realize that how you design things, you know, if I'm going to go order a switchboard, there's no IR windows in it. And if I ever want to IR scan that thing, I gotta like either take the customer down or figure out some way of doing that. You know, a lot of people just didn't really understand that, you know, the impact and all the programs that can exist, you know, that, that you should be doing. You know, like another example is medium voltage transformers. We have a lot of them. So like some of the, the sites may have like 20, 25 generators and different lines to supply of like a 36 megawatt building. And every generator has its own line, its own medium voltage transformer to feed, you know, that, that line. And yeah, they, the sample valve and cap was like inside the enclosure. So you can't get in there to do your annual oil samples. And so like, that's kind of crazy. And for whatever reason, about the time I started, they started having, you know, those extended out, you know, where you actually get to them. But the other ones didn't, you know, so we bought these units from this company that extended it out you know, brought the gauge out, you know, so you can see like, you know, what the nitrogen pressure was and the temperature and stuff like that. But those are types of things that, you know, the, the company and not just your, your maintenance people and not just operations, you know, we have to look at like supply chain, do they understand? They're part of the culture. You know, the people who do all the capital planning, 
you know, they need to be part of the culture. You know, you know, all the, the financial people, you know, as you're justifying capital, justifying your budget, all those things have, you know, an impact and how well you can introduce reliability and perform it and, and accomplish things. Um, and sometimes it may be more of a corporate thing. Maybe your corporate people, you know, spec out, you know, different machines because there's so many of them, you know, and, and they use all that leverage and, you know, quantities, you know, reduce the pricing and whatnot. So those are things to them. Um, and those are a lot of the good examples. Actually, that's most of the things that I was gonna kind of cover. So I'm, I'm hoping there's lots of good questions. Be happy to answer any of them. And I really appreciate your time this morning. It's a great topic, but it can be changed. Thank you. All right, Robin, we have some questions. All right, Lee, can you hear me? Yeah, I hear you now. Okay, sorry about that. I don't know what was going on. I thought both of us had great weather today. Um, <laughs> so let's start out with, we have several questions. I hope you're ready. Um, so the first question I have, can we, can we quantify the effect of culture between productivity, safety, reliability, and product quality? Wow. That's a tough one to start out with. I don't know how you could quantify it except going from point A to point B over a longer period of time, like a year, two, three years, implement things and look back. I mean, I'm sure there's like minute little changes you can make. Um, I think a lot of, you know, like, like Ron Moore, you know, he's got that book, you know, Common Sense. It's a, a really great book and he really has done some studies on safety and reliability. So I think for those two, there's definitely a link there. And of all the studies he's done, a lot, you know, OSHA recordables and whatnot, and, and your reliability, there's, there's a definite relationship there, you know, to watch things improve. Um, yeah, I, I wish there was a, like a key indicator, but I, I think you have to kind of just look at all the programs and look at your budget and, and all those key performance indicators that you use and just, uh, over several years, I, I know in my first plant, they had an awful lot of, you know, there's, I was a young buck, right? I'm in my early thirties, you know, and, and everybody's like 50 and above. And it just, it took a while. It took three, four years before they really kind of respected and saw the evidence of where we were going. You know, like organize a storeroom, you know, got a PM plan going, start looking at predictive maintenance, all those things. Go over a three, four year period, you know, you kind of look at, hey, this is what my budget's doing. You know, this is a culture. This is our downtime, which is the key. And this is our, our yield, our productivity, you know, how much we're, we're, we're shipping out the door and our profit. And they did go up. 
Um, but I think it's incremental thing and you just can't bite off too much that you chew in the beginning. Expect instant results, gratification like a lot of Americans do. <laughs> And, and the next question, we have several. The next question is in line with something you and I were talking about before we started the session today. And that is, you know, dealing with distract, detractors and blockers. And the, the specific question is, how do you identify bad apples on the management team and how do you deal with them quickly and effectively? Yes, um, you know, when I was in the Navy, I had one of my uh, my petty officers who just complained all the time. I mean, it was constant. Every meeting, every training, he would interrupt. And, and one day I said to him, uh, Pastor Moore, I go, I'll bet if I gave you next week off for vacation, you'd complain about it. And he said, yeah. He said, I, wanna, I don't want next week. I want a different week. <laughs> and it really hit me. And some people are just that way. That's just their, their, their nature. So somehow you have to channel that, you know, figure out what it is that you can get them, you know, whatever their touch point is, you know, if it's, what is a real dis, dissatisfaction, you know, is it a promotion? Is it not enough work? Are they not trained? Hopefully you can come up with something there. And at some point they, they probably need to move on, you know, whether it's in a different department you know, maybe it kind of assess their background, something that fits them better. Um, I've told a couple of folks that, you know, I'm not sure this is the right company for you, you know, and sometimes they would come around, you know, and they realize I wasn't just going to stand by and, and absorb all this neg negativity, you know, and then so that's going down. So if you go up and you have other, you know, maybe it's a peer, you know, maybe it's a fellow manager that just doesn't seem eye to eye. So maybe you can try to, you know, go get a beer with them. Maybe you try to go golfing with them. You can try those types of things, find something common, you know, maybe a common sports team, or that might not be a negative, you know, for your rivals. Um, so and, basically, basically try to try to get that other person to see you as human and you see them as human and maybe you can get past yep. that, that, uh, a generalization that's causing them to maybe be a cog in the wheel. Yeah, I think part of it is them seeing that you got your stuff together, you know, that you're making a difference. And that if there's something that hopefully you're doing to help them, right? I mean, production should be maybe like the customer, you know, and maybe, yeah, hey, what can I do to help your job? You know, and depending upon what it is, you know, maybe you can, maybe you can't, but that might be another way to approach it. Hopefully you don't have to end up going over his head, you know, to your your plant manager or whatever level that is, because that, that usually isn't the best. You know, plant managers like to see everybody get together and work together. And what about checklist? Have you have you seen examples, or do you have any thoughts on maybe establishing a troubleshooting checklist that helps solve problems, culture problems? Well. I think if you look at culture and trying to, you know, reduce downtime, reduce your problems, you know, checklists are invaluable besides like a PM checklist, you know, like um, one of my plants, we had steam boilers and if we would lose our natural gas, then we had to switch over to fuel oil. So do you have a detailed checklist that you've walked through, you've exercised step-by-step step so that anybody 
to come in and follow it and, and be able to do that. And as part of the checklist, you know, do you have all the tools you need? You know, do you have the right wrench, you know, to operate, you know, special valves, you know, whether it's under maybe your fire system, different things like that. I, you know, what I learned is there's a lot of auxiliary systems, you know, like maybe air makeup units that provide air to the plant, you know, your fire pump, your fire systems, you know, your natural gas, all those kind of utilities and things that come in that, you know, until the, the lights go out, you know, nobody really cares, right? If you lose electricity, you know, are you actually doing a PM in your high voltage substation? You know, one of my plants, they never did any maintenance on, on the transformers or whatnot. You know, so I think that's those, those good places for checklists. You know, one, training and, you know, educate people on what's there. You know, make sure maybe your emergency power organization, you know, for emergencies that, you know, like I, if we had a certain thing, like a loss of power simulating, you know, do I got somebody going back you know, where the power comes in and verify, you know, what the problem is on the switchboards. Now people identified and maintenance to go out and, you know, to the problem and, and identify it. So it's kind of a checklist, but it's also a procedure, you know, to cover those kinds of things that really kind of can impact the whole plant. So I hope I answered that question. <laughs> well, we have more coming at you. <laughs> Um, how, you know, as a, as a rule, maintenance teams are usually long-term teams that have worked together. Um, how do you get site leadership uh, to build into a change in culture is also having a having succession planning? Um, <clears throat> so like my, my first plant I, I, I got to out of the Navy where I was a young guy, we had all the people you know, 50 years and older. And and what happened there was they had actually fired the maintenance supervisor before me. So it's kind of like, there's no way to go but up, you know, but I kind of, you have to establish yourself, first of all, you know, with your team. And hey, there's gonna be changes. And uh, this is gonna kind of be the way it is. Um, and I think that the management, since they hired you, hopefully, will support all of that. And I know some of my guys actually went to the union and said, hey, you know, this, you know, McClish guy who's making us do this and that. And of course, you know, I'm following, you know, good leadership practices. I'm not violating anything in the contract, treating people fair. And um, so they went to the union management meeting and, and they had a session talking about, you know, Lee McClish. And afterwards, you know, our general manager and, and my boss, our production manager, and they, had to sit down with me and they're like, you know, you're doing a pretty good job. You're getting our attention, <laughs> you know, making some good changes and, and whatnot. So it was easy, you know, with that point of view. Um, in another, another plant I joined, they had a merger and they had two, two about the same size companies come together when I worked for graphic packaging. And the, the, the position I was in was a, a brand new one. You know, they had a maintenance supervisor, but they made me what was called the RCM, you know, manager. Um, and this guy had been there 40, I think actually like 45 years, you know. Um, but there's a lot of corporate initiatives and things that we had to do that just had to be done. And he didn't have the skills and the background really to do it. So I was able to work with him and kind of make make the necessary changes to satisfy what we needed to get done. And the management already kind of, you know, bought off on it because that's kind of what they wanted done. So 
you have to just kind of work your way through the culture and and just try one thing and then try something else and just go from one thing to the next until you finally you know get that right yes button yeah okay um do we have time for one more sure all right um do you have additional personal examples you can share of how you effective culture affected culture change quickly is it possible to do it quickly um one thing that i hope is is doing a survey so like i think my first month in my first plant we didn't get a whole lot of work orders and so i created a form say here fill this out because you know they, they didn't allow operators to enter work orders and so I've actually changed that, you know, had them do work requests and then we had work orders, which is the way it really should be. You know, nobody filled them darn forms out, you know, not, not a one. And so, you know, I talk about a monthly communication meeting and whatnot. It took a long time to kind of steer that, but I did a survey to find out not just why they weren't filling work orders out, but hey, operations, what don't you like about, you know, maintenance? And I really got some pretty candid, good feedback. And so I, I think when people saw changes, hey, we're going to do this now, we're going to do that now, you know, maybe we had like a zone maintenance, you know, you had certain people tagged, you know, like one maintenance guy would have like six machines and he was to be visible there. He'd do all the PMs, make sure we had a spare parts. You know, maybe there's a lot of personality conflicts. I had to like move, you know, a guy to a different department. You know, people see those kinds of things. And I think a lot of it is I'm seeing you approachable over there and give you ideas. I think that's probably one of the biggest things you can do in the beginning is set the expectations, have a written plan, and have communicated and shared it, and then just start doing it. Thank you okay. so much for your time today, Lee. We appreciate you being here.